Good morning. It is great to see you guys this morning. And as we uh, jump back into the book of John, I just want to start with a, a simple question. How many of you guys remember ever getting the willies? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That feeling that you get when it's late at night and you're thirsty and you wake up and you decide, I'm going to get a drink of water. And you climb down in the darkness of the night or from downstairs or across your hall into your kitchen and you're looking out your window and you just begin to wonder, is somebody looking back at you? And you get that feeling that somebody's actually in your house. You don't know what it is and something in the back of your mind is tingling and you get creepy and you run as fast as you can and you always get under your covers because it's the safest place in the house, Right? <laughs> You're like, okay, I'm saying, you're like, fall asleep, fall asleep. No, the willies are creepy. And, um, and called the creeps, the willies, there's all kinds of different names for it. But I remember the worst case I had ever had was actually in, um, was at, in, well, I was working for Insight for a Living. I was, I was going to Biola and I was working as a janitor at Insight for a Living. So we would come late at night and we would do vacuum stuff. But this time I had to actually come even later. I had a late class that came all the way up till 10 o'clock or something. And I hung out with some friends and suddenly I'm like, I got to get to this high rise that was in, down in Fullerton and had two, the top two stories was, belonged to the, to the Insight for a Living team. And, and so I'd get there and it was midnight. And I can remember getting in there at midnight and I had to go into these, into this place and it had some of the creepiest hallways. I mean, this long, long hallway with crisscross maroon patterned carpet and the doors lining all the way down. And, and I can just remember I was pushing the vacuum along. I'm the only one in the building. I'd unlock it. And I'm like thinking as I'm coming up to the corner, please let there don't be any twins standing there in the middle of this hallway. And, and you know, I, I started coming around. I was like, okay, good. They're not there. And I remember then taking the back vac and vacuuming out and I come up to the uh, to one of the offices it was lined with all these glass panels and you're just like looking in the glass panels like what's that what's that you're just like freaking out everywhere I go I get into the bathroom and I'm starting to clean the mirror and I'm seeing my own reflection I'm going please please don't wink at me you know it's kind of that that kind of feeling and suddenly then then it really hit I'm like what was that turn around and there you know you've got four stalls behind me I'm going like Okay, what was that? And I'm feeling, I'm walking up and I see, I think I see something over one of the stalls and I start sneaking up to it and I'm like, hello, hello. And I start slowly pushing it open. Not sure. Bah! I just got to do that to you guys because it's fun. So, um, now, isn't it weird how I can just slowly slow down my tone of voice and do that? And I, I draw you in. Your mind actually preps itself for fear. We do this with horror movies. We do this in all kinds of situations at like campfire stories, all that fun stuff. But the reality is that it's, your mind is set for this. In certain scenarios and certain setups, you actually begin to get scared because of the context surrounding you. And this is the very case as we find with the disciples. And we find this in the book of John, chapter 6. And if you want to go there, we can check out this eerie situation that the disciples find themselves in, in John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. So if you want to go there and join with me, grab your Bible, open it up if your heart stopped beating, and uh, get it started again. And you can join us on page 891, and the Bible's under the seats. And you can be with us right here at the beginning of this. Now, a little bit of background for those of you who weren't here last week. Uh, John has just finished describing how Jesus has just fed 5,000 men. So it could be upwards of 20,000 people with children and, and women or, you know, somewhere in the zone of 5,000 to that zone of people that are potential in this situation. Now, 
Jesus multiplied this bread. The people are so astonished and excited about this because they're all poor and they don't have a lot to eat all the time. They've all eaten their fill. They turn, they're like, let's make Jesus king. And they're all marching after Jesus. And Jesus is like, um, I'm going for a hike. And so he hiked up into the hills. Now we do know from the other gospels in um, Matthew and Mark and Luke that Jesus told the disciples to head on down to the boats. He would dismiss the crowds. And so it looks like what's gone on here is they've been up in the mountain area and they're up on a mountainside. There's a bit of a distance between them and the lake. And Jesus simply tells the disciples, take off. We don't know how long that took. But Jesus has turned to the crowd, and he's about to dismiss them when they're trying to make him king. And he's like, okay, I'm out of here, and goes off into the mountainside to pray. And we pick up with the disciples now as we kind of leave the crowd behind, and we jump into them in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So this isn't a big deal. They're all, and the four of them are fishermen. Um, Peter, James, Andrew, and John have all grown up in Capernaum. And it was quite common for them to fish through the night. In fact, one of the actual stories we have from the gospel is of the fact that they had fished all night and caught nothing. So it's not uncommon for them to be out on the sea at night. And so they're out there. They're hanging out. They're sailing across. And they decide to go home because Jesus tells them to. They probably stood around long enough to go, I guess he's not coming. We don't know what's going on. He told us to go. Let's go. Maybe an argument broke out. We don't know. But they climbed into the boat and they started going across. And as they're going along, with it, you got to realize it's, it's pretty bright. This is around Passover, it told us. And Passover has a full moon. And so there's this brightness about the moon that's probably covering the area. It's either full, almost full or just past full. And so they're sailing out into this moonlit area. But it doesn't stay well. It kind of begins to fall apart in verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, and so here's a couple of keys in what's going on. Right there, we don't see it, but their life becomes in immediate jeopardy. See, the Sea of Galilee sits about 400 feet below sea level, and it has massive winds that will whip up, rolling down the hills and start bringing waves that are so choppy. Even in modern day times in Israel, they will not allow a motorboat out onto the boat when the wind is blowing in these kinds of conditions. It is that deadly of a situation. And here they are out in the middle of the night. The wind is blowing, probably howling. The waves are bouncing them up and down. The spray is coming in their face. There's no rain, but it is indeed a dangerous situation. Now, it's even eerier to me because of the way that John describes it. Now, to us, it's just a sentence, the sea became rough. But the word rough is a strange word. It is actually a word that's not usually used, as far as I've researched and looked, for seas. It is a term that means awakened. And it's always been used in all the other cases to wake somebody up or to stir something up in the heart to awaken something inside of you. And it's always dealt with personifications, people. So what's strange here is that John seems to be indicating, unlike the other disciples who describe the waves and they describe the wind, John says, no, the wind was blowing and the sea awakened. Now, I want to take us for a second back, way back, because you and I are going like, so? But we, we, don't, we live in a time period where we have forces. You have the force of gravity and you have, we stand and we hear meteorologists say, well, the high pressure in this area is creating the low pressure and the wind is going to come through and we're going to have Santa Ana. You know, we hear that all the time. 
And so we kind of assume that's how people always thought. But no, back then, they didn't have people talking about high pressures and low pressures. There wasn't the force of gravity or this force or that force. No, no, when things moved, somebody moved them. When the lake awakens, it awakens. There's a power involved here. Whether it was the power of God or whether it was the power of a demonic spirit or the spirits of some, the elemental spirits, there were concepts throughout the Roman culture that had even trickled into the Greek, especially the northern, uh, sorry, the northern Jewish area, that spoke about these powers. It's where you get ideas of polytheism and demons. And so the reality is that they're here in this situation and this lake has awakened. And these are fishermen. You got to understand these guys know all the common vernacular for what's going on on the lake. They know all the rumors. They know the stories. They know who believes what. And, if they're, and, and so there is something happening here. Are they freaking out because just a little while earlier Jesus cast a whole bunch of demons into the lake? And these demons after them? What's going on? Fear is risen because he uses this word awakened. And then note this, when it continues, when they had rowed about three or four miles, the wind is blowing against them, they're, par- they're paddling as hard as they can. Suddenly they, see, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were what? Frightened, terrified. The first instance of any of their emotions, the wind is buffeting them, the waves are flying around, and they're rowing. It just seems like they're determined to get there. Rowing, 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 spray is spraying in their face. They're going up, they're coming down. Are they screaming? Are they fearful for their lives? All we know is that it's not until they see Jesus that they're terrified. The situation, the moonlit night, the winds and the, way, the, the sea is awakened, the wind is blowing, and you can just imagine it. Peter's yelling, come on, guys, row harder, row harder. I'm exhausted. Leave me alone, Peter. No, row harder. And suddenly somebody taps Judas and says, Judas, what's that? What's that? Oh, stop it. I'm rowing. No. What is that over there? What? what? Ah! You see, these aren't like dumb first century people who, oh, yeah, people walk on water all the time. We know that. <laughs> That's what we're told that we believe, that somehow people back then didn't know better about miracles. No, 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 they look out there and they're not going like, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. That's a guy walking on the water. That just happens, you know? That's, that's, keep going. No. They look out there and they go, they don't have the willies. They're terrified. Because they're just not thinking they're seeing something. They're actually seeing something. In fact, it's interesting that this, the other authors who, who, who actually state this, Matthew and Mark, who do the same story, they say they yell out, it's a ghost! Well, what else would you think it was? You're in the middle of nowhere and a human figure is coming up towards your boat. And you've been taught as a fisherman that the dead will rise up to take you down. There are demons on the lake that will take you out. These are concepts that were floating in there. And they're sitting there and they're going, it's a ghost! Ah, you, you can imagine all the rowing stops. Everybody climbs to one side of the boat. The thing's starting to tip. This is a mess. And then there's a way of allegory for a second. I find it fascinating that in the middle of our trials, in the middle of the dangerous points in our lives, where things seem to be going or falling apart, fear is so ready at hand, isn't it? I mean, in our trials, our fears can actually get the most of us if we're not careful. I guess the best example I can point to, and maybe this is what's influencing me, is that in our family right now, we've been dealing with some pretty... A difficult stuff with my daughter. 
and we're not quite sure what's going on. We've had to go to the, the hospital a couple times, and we've been watching her go through a bunch of pains, and so and we're, and everybody's been asking me, what's going on? We're not quite sure what's going on, but I do know when this began a couple weeks ago, it's been one of the most heart-wrenching things to watch my daughter go through this pain, and in the midst of it, cry and say, Dad, what do you think God is doing? Why, why is he, what does he want from me? Why am I going through this? And just see the fear that this is going to last forever enter into her soul. The fear entering into my soul of like, how am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? How are we going to deal with this? I need to, I need to respond. I need to fix this. On the other side, my son Nathaniel comes in only a, little, a couple hours after my daughter's having that problem. He's like, Mom, Dad, I, I really believe that. You know, you told me, say, you said that Satan's going to attack our family more. I really think this is Satan attacking our family because he doesn't want something to happen. I mean, isn't that how we are? Isn't that the answers in the middle of so many of our trials? I don't know what suffering you're going through. I don't know if it's a physical suffering in which you find yourself in massive amounts of pain. Your body's stopped working for you. you, you, you you're facing a situation spiritually where the temptations don't seem to stop. It's come to the level of addiction in aspects of your life or there's something that you know you, so, you long for but it's wrong and you can't have it or, or maybe that you find yourself in, in the midst of a, of a situation where a family member's walked from the Lord and you're just not sure if they're ever gonna come back and, and the fear is creeping in. Can God use me? Is he against me? I mean, God, why are you doing this? Why, why this now? Or maybe some of us have given into superstitions and, and other kinds of things, or we, or we really believe that theologically that the devil's on us. Now, it's true that there can be a sense that the demonic world can influence and affect us, but some of us have gotten into superstitions and we think, somewhere back here you invoked the Spirit and he's doing something to you now, and, 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 and maybe there's some, some rituals or something that I can deal with, and, and fear has gripped you. And your fear is so overwhelming that you're not quite sure which way to go or what to do anymore, and you just, you just don't know where to turn. Trials do this to us. And I don't find it coincidental that suddenly in the midst of their rowing, in the midst of their struggling, in the midst of the near death they're at, that they're freaked out when Jesus shows up. They're just not like, it's Jesus. You know, they don't identify him. The wind is blowing. The waves are crashing. They're going to sink and it looks like something's going to kill them. And your life is crushing and it's falling apart and you wonder, God, what are you doing? It looks like something's going to kill you. Look, the supernatural is not something we're just like, oh, it's God. If Jesus showed up in here, I think we would get the willies. I think we would suddenly be like, oh. The supernatural is not something you meet. And you're just like, yeah, isn't an angel pretty? Let me draw it. The Bible constantly says that they fear. They tremble. We shake. And even in the midst of our trials, when God comes near, there is a resistance our flesh gives and a pushing back that our psychology enables us to say, no, I'm going to figure it out myself. I'm going to keep on rowing. No, no, no. This isn't God because God, God's, this is the devil because this seems so too horrible. And yet Jesus does something here. He, he does something more. In fact, let's look again. He turns to them, verse 20 says, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. He speaks to them. And just in his speaking, suddenly, they go from terrified to they were glad. They were willing to invite him into the boat. 
from stay away, scared to no, no, get in here, get in here. And it comes from his word. And I want to point this out. It is his word that comforts us in the midst of our fear. Fear is calm by trusting God's word and then letting him in. And that's really what we see here. It's trusting his word and allowing him into the boat that suddenly this trial is, is put into its context. They hear him say, it is I, it is I. Now that's important because if you're in the ancient world and you see somebody walking on the waves, and that's, that was kind of a curious thought. Jerry was like, when he's walking on the waves, I mean, we all think of the, it's like this calm water and he's just like cruising like I am on here. It's like, what's happening guys? How's it going? I'm going to beat you. You know? No, no. It's like, this is choppy waves. It's like Jesus like doing like, boom. Oh God, over that one. Yeah. He's just like, is he like, you know, in his tunic, jumping around all the waves and stuff. And he's like athletic Jesus on the water or something. And you're just like, that's cool. It's ninja Jesus. You know, it's like this is a, but we don't know. But whatever it is, if you see a guy walking on water in the midst of the wind, the wind's not affecting him, the waves aren't affecting him. He's cruising along and the boat's like, this isn't funny. You know, it's like, that guy's in control. That guy's in control of the water. That guy's in control of the wind. They assumed it was an evil spirit or a ghost or something which would have had some kind of control over what was going on. And here they're looking at this going, that guy's in control. And when Jesus says, it is I, all this stuff goes, locks together. Because when he says, it is I, he's declaring what you're frightened of is me. So don't be. What you think is out to get you is me and I'm not. But at the same time, he's showing them, I'm the one over the waves. I'm the one over the wind. I'm the one over your trial. As Americans, I don't think we're comfortable thinking that the Lord is the Lord over our sufferings. We're very quick to go, well, well, Jesus isn't the problem, it's the devil. Or no, it's the fall. And yet God is not uncomfortable to to kind of claim on his own some of the, the sufferings of this world. In fact, in the book of Exodus, as, as he's told Moses, go preach to Pharaoh to let my people go. We, we, if you've heard that story before, you, you find out that Moses goes, I can't, I'm not a very good, I'm not a very good speaker. It's just not going to work for me. And, and this is God's response. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Have we ever stopped and looked at that for a second? Who makes him mute? That's the inability to speak. Deaf, the inability to hear, see, blind. These are chronic suffering ailments people live life through. They don't get the chance to see. They don't get the chance to hear. They don't get the chance to speak. And the Lord is saying, I'm the one who makes it that way. I think some of us are like, I don't like that. But this is what he says. It's mistranslated. No, it's not. And the reality is the Lord is very comfortable. In fact, Hannah, after she has just gone through years of years of suffering, has finally had this opportunity to have a baby in the book of 1 Samuel. And the baby's name is Samuel. And she sings this song to the Lord. And in it, and it's considered the, the arc of the entire book of 1 and 2 Samuel is in this poem. And she says very clearly, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings 
down to Sheol, which is the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. I mean, very real situations here. It says that that, that, one, that loved one who died, the Lord's the one who brought him to his end. That one who is healed, the Lord is the one who used those doctors to make them well. It, the Lord is the one who puts people into the poverty situation, which is awful and chronic, and, and some not. It's the Lord who takes people out of jobs and powerful positions and exalts others. And this is a wrestling match for many of us. We've got to really deal with this because if the, we want to say, no, no, the Lord's not the Lord over those things. But if the Lord is not Lord over our sufferings, how can he be Lord of all? And so in the middle of our suffering, one of the hardest things to do is to receive his word. It is I. Do not fear. It's I. I'm in control. I'm in control of that chronic pain. I'm in control of that child who's gone wayward. I'm in control even though you're feeling tempted like crazy. I'm in control of your economic situation. The Lord is Lord still. And, and he, Job had to wrestle through this to realize all that went on. Ultimately, he's like, the Lord does this to me. And, and the Lord said, you've spoken rightly. Even though he used the devil, ultimately it was permitted by the Lord. You turn around and suddenly you have another situation where Jesus is sitting in a garden. And here is the Son of God kneeling saying, God, oh, I do not want this cup. Take it from me. But not my will, your will be done. What is this cup but his suffering on the cross? His bearing our sins. And so here, very clearly, the will of God was that Jesus would bear our sins on the cross. Now, Jesus was willing. He did go. He said, I'm going to set aside my desire not to suffer this because I'm going to be after you. And he willingly bore our sins. But it was the will of God that the suffering would come. And we go, wow, wow, wait, wait, wait. So God's over my suffering. That's freaky. God's over this trial I'm in? God's over this struggle I'm in? Yes. The, that, that's disquieting to some of us. Because I think the echo that refrains in my mind is my daughter's question. Why is this going on to me? Why is this happening to me now? What does God want me to do? And when you see that, while it's right, the answer pastorally is something I, I, I have to say. I, I mean, I'm sitting there listening to her going like, well, what, what am I going to say? I may bust out um, Romans 8.28, all things work to the good. No, no, no. The, the answer to that question in the midst of suffering is not a word, it's time. I hate to say that, but it's true. I have yet to have found a clear-cut, good verbal answer to anybody's suffering. And yet something about time, when somebody makes it through that marital trouble, when somebody makes it through that pain, when somebody makes it through that financial crisis, they come out the other side and they go, you know what? I think I see what God was doing now. None of us can answer those questions but the Lord himself. And it takes time. And when you're in the middle of it, it's so hard. But I'm just telling you, hear his word. He says, it is I. I've got control of it. It is I. And so the second part about it is I, though, can be comforting. It doesn't have to be disquieting. Because he's saying, it's me. It's I. It's Jesus. 
I'm here. It's not an angry, malevolent thing. It's the benevolent one, the one who you love, the one you know. You, you know, the guy who just fed 5,000 people out of compassion for them. You know, the guy who's healed people who suffered for 38 years. Yeah, that's me, the guy you've just been walking with through this, through this whole time. I'm here. I'm the one in control. And that means I'm not here to, to destroy you. It's beautiful. In the book of Hosea, Hosea has been preaching and and the nation he's been preaching to has just been decimated by a giant empire. And and he turns to them and he says, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us. That's a horrible statement. That's the picture of a lion taking his claw and cutting open your flesh. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And the picture here is, is a picture for, the, for Israel was of discipline. They had disobeyed God and walked away from God. And there are times in our lives where we will go through trials for our discipline. That God is trying to take away something that we are clinging to that is not, he doesn't desire for us. Because he wants to make us like his son. And so he will. He will put us through a time of pain, a time of suffering, a time of trial. Not to leave us there, but in order to really heal us. In order to really bind us up. He had to remove something like a surgeon has to remove from us in order to make us truly well. And that's what's going on in discipline in some cases. And that's what's going on here. And in order for all of us to be healed, in order for all of us to be bound up, Christ had to be torn. Christ had to suffer that we would be healed. And he was risen from the dead. And the picture is that over and over, there's a suffering. He's saying, it is I. I, I'm there too. I've suffered too. I am with you. And so there is a hope in our suffering, as Paul points out in Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, he says, now that you have this friendship with God, we can rejoice with that. But not only that, we get to rejoice in our sufferings. Anybody signing up for that praise night? It's like a blues night. That's what that is. But in this blues, they says, yes, we're going to rejoice in our suffering, knowing why? That suffering produces endurance. Yeah, you're going to row. And you're going to stroke as hard as you can. And you're going to go against those waves. And right now, some of you are exhausted. You have been rowing and rowing and rowing. And you're going, I'm too tired to lift the oar. And yet you endure and that endurance produces character. Character is this picture of an imprint upon you. You've been imprinted with this endurance. You've been imprinted with this character of Christ. He's making you and shaping you and changing you. And each of our sufferings, I believe, are made specifically for us to make us as we need to be made into the image of Christ. And the people around us. Because that character just doesn't stay. It produces hope. What do I mean by that? Not just heaven, but I believe God is so just. There are rewards for those who suffer. The suffering you go through, that you go through faithfully in this life, that you allow Jesus into your boat and you connect with him and you walk through that suffering with him, he indeed rewards. He will not leave you unrewarded. As you fight that temptation, as you suffer through that ailment, as you trust him in the midst of your things, it brings hope because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He's already given you the down payment, his very presence, which is what the Holy Spirit is. It's God's presence in our life and it's been given to us. Now, I bring the Holy Spirit up here, not just because of the text, but because they had to let him on the boat. 
Once they knew it was him, once they knew it was Jesus who wasn't out to destroy them, but it was Jesus who loved them, they're like, get on the boat, get on the boat. They're, they want him on the boat. Maybe because they're thinking he can row for me, you know, because I'm tired. But they're letting Jesus on the boat because they're willing to trust his word and accept him in. The spirit of God comes into our lives when we've trusted the word and accepted him into our lives. And the very real thing that occurs is when we acknowledge him with us, we invite him in and the God who comes to be with us is named the Holy Spirit. But he also has another name later in the book of John. Here it is in John 14. He's called the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now the Greek word is kind of interesting. Some of your Bibles, you were to look this up, would say the helper. Some of them would say the comforter. And some of them would say the counselor. And all three of them derive from this position that a person had named the paraclete. He would stand as an advocate next to somebody in a judicial court. And he would stand and defend the person. He would advise them with counsel. He would give them aid against the court or in the court. And he, or he would give them comfort in the midst of these things. And so this is the picture of who he is. Who better do you want in your sufferings than one who is able to give you aid? You're so exhausted you can't go another, another round and you find that as you meet with God in prayer, he gives you the energy to make it through that next day. Or you're just sitting there and, and you're wrestling and you don't know what to do and you find that as you're reading the word of God, the very counselor himself is leading you through the word to the understanding of what you need. Because he's there to guide you as a counselor or perhaps he's just simply present. You needed somebody just to be there. And God is there. And some of you honestly can attest to the fact that God's not always distant in our suffering. Very often, he is very present. And his spirit is with us whether we feel it or not. Sometimes it shows up as a friend who just gives you a long hug. Somebody who gives you that, that perfect card with that statement that just carries you through that next week. But my friends, that is God's work. And he is your comforter. And he's come to you and said, it is I. Let him in the suffering. Let him on the boat. And what's fascinating then is at times this will occur. Go ahead and look at verse 21. They were glad to let him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, some see a miracle here, and some see that uh, not so much of a miracle, but uh, depending on how far away they were, according to where you think they were, they were either close to land or they were way far away from the land. In those who, like me, I think they were way far away from the land, this is actually a miracle of teleportation. Who wouldn't sign up for that gift of the Spirit? Amen? Right now at the 15 freeway, it's like, I'm at work. Yes! That'd be Awesome! Get some extra sleep, hang out with the family, teleportation, love it. No, but the, I, I, obviously that's, that's I, I don't know how this works out. My point is simply that it was a guarantee they made it through the trial. They were at the end of their trial. They went to bed. They got into Capernaum. They went to sleep because Jesus came on the boat and it was enough. The trial was over. Now, for some of us, we're going to experience the radical wonder of the fact that at times, Jesus actually deals with our struggle immediately. It's gone. Some of you came to Christ and the drug addiction, it flew away. Some of you came to Christ and, and that sinful layer, whether it was cussing or the way that you thought or maybe it was a lust, they just vanished for you. Others of you, you found your marriage just perfectly healed. Some of you have been healed. 
because you invited Jesus in. And God does this sometimes. And I would love to just go, God does it all the time. But, he, but you know what? He will do it all the time for everyone who trusts him in eternity. There is a day in which all of this will be over and you will stand on the shores of eternity after we've passed through the journey of this world, which is not our home. And we will land in a land in which there is no suffering, no death, no disease, no crying, no shame. It's all gone. For Jesus came and in his work redeemed everything. You say, but Greg, that's great. But I have chronic pain. I invite Jesus in the boat. But it's going to be a long journey. Sure, he's sitting there and I'm comforted and I'm getting that presence, but this, we're not coming to the shore anytime soon. And I get that. You know, sometimes we go through that chronic pain and we need to see it. No, check this out. Go on to verse 22. We, we, we move away from the disciples. We now shift back to the crowd. We're, we're back on the other side of the lake. And on the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea and saw that they had been only, there had only been one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. So they're like going, like, boat, no Jesus. We know that guy said he didn't go. In the, Where's Jesus? Everybody's looking around. Nobody finds Jesus. Hunting for him. They, he'd not entered the boat. The disciples had gone away alone. So other boats from Tiberias pull up. They're like, what are you guys doing here? We need help. And so they all climb into these boats. They place the place where they had eaten the bread. And after the Lord had given thanks, they move forward. I find it interesting that he focused on them. We'll jump back to that in a second. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're like, where's the guy we want to make king? We were, where's the guy who fed us food? You know, remember, these guys are poor. They have a chronic problem. It's called poverty. They're chronically hungry. They're desperate for food. And they just found a guy who takes a little bit and multiplies it into enough. There's power. And they're like, that guy, we want that guy as king. We want that guy now. And they're all rushing around seeking Jesus. They jump on boat, sail across to go find Jesus. They get over there looking for the guy who's going to feed them. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they're like, we're looking for Jesus. There he is. How'd that happen? I don't know what that means. I just find that funny. So Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, in other words, things that pointed to the fact that I'm God, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, because I solved your chronic problem for a little bit. And then he says something very insightful. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Hey, guys. Don't labor for the healing that's going to go away. Don't labor for, for, for that temptation to be over because there will be another one. Don't labor for that chronic pain to vanish because there will be another pain. My friend Matt and Kelly told me the story of a book they've been reading about a man who's wrote a book on suffering. He's, he's a pastor and immediately, just shortly into his pastorate, he had some problem. He lost the use of both of his arms. And it is kind of standing there. He preaches and he, you know, no hand gestures in that church. He can't even hold his Bible. In fact, he can't buckle himself into a seatbelt. He can't drive his car. He couldn't carry his children. And as he went through this suffering and all this constant chronic suffering, he began to become a one-issue sufferer. He said, I realized I was praying to God, God, if you just heal my arms, oh, life would be so Perfect. And that sounds silly to some of us, but the reality is when you suffer chronically, that chronic pain can become your life. You'll define yourself by it. 
and becomes all you think about and all you hope for and you assume if he would just heal this, life would be perfect. And Jesus reminds us, no. Don't go seeking for the healing that's temporary. Don't go seeking for the food that'll fill your belly and only make you hungry later. Don't go seeking for the things that are temporary and temporal. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And there's a lot in this, but I'm just going to put it in this terms. You see, what he says is there is, a, there is a food that you need to have. Something that needs to fill you so that you can make it into eternal life. And the problem is that our chronic suffering here is just a symptom of the greatest chronic suffering that every human being, whether you feel it or not, from when we were babies all the way till we're old, we suffer from. And that's called the chronic suffering of sin. God may heal you and renew your body, put you right, but if sin is not dealt with, there will be suffering and it will last forever. And so Jesus says, I see your suffering. I hear your hunger. I know your pain. I see what you're going through with your back. I see you're grieving over your loved one. I know what you're going through. It is I. I have control. Allow me in that I may comfort you, counsel you, or even aid you in the midst of this thing. But trust me. Seek the greatest thing, which is to be relieved of sin, so that one day when you are renewed and made new, you will never suffer again. In other words, if you're suffering with chronic pain and you've let him in, you are guaranteed, if he's in your life, you will reach the other shore. Because he has taken that chronic pain upon himself. And he has borne that on your behalf. So that one day when you get off the boat of this life, and you step onto the shores of eternity, the gates of heaven are open. And no sin will pull you back into the abyss. That is why we are free. And if you're suffering today, I want to challenge you. Hear his word. Trust it. Let him in. He loves us. And he cares for us. And he will lead us through this world, which is not our home, all the way through. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your word and just this side note of allegory in a sense in which we can just be reminded that you love us in the way that you do. Would you just bless those who are in suffering and empower them by your presence. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.